Why worry alone? The Rocky Mountain Myrick Suicide Risk Management Consultation Program provides free one-on-one consultation for any provider, both community and VA, who serves veterans at risk for suicide. For more information about this program and to check out all our resources, please visit the consult page at www.myrec.va.gov slash bisn19 slash consult. To initiate a consult, please email srmconsult at va.gov. Hashtag never worry alone. Everybody, and welcome back to the Rocky Mountain Myrex Short Takes on Suicide Prevention podcast. We are happy to have Dr. Ryan Holiday joining us today, and he's going to tell us a little bit about himself and the work he's doing here at the Rocky Mountain Myrex as a postdoctoral fellow. So, welcome, Ryan. Oh, happy to be here. Great. So, let's start off with just some of the basics a little bit about yourself and why you're interested in this work and sort of your path here to Denver. Okay. Uh, so where do I start from that? Do you want me to start in high school or before that? When did your passion for serving veterans start? Oh, okay. Uh, sorry for the joke there. Do we not do jokes on this? You can I don't do know. jokes. Do we do, do jokes? Do, do I have to stop now? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Uh, so where do I start from that? Do you want me to start in high school or before that? <laughs> when did your passion for serving veterans start? Oh, Okay. Uh, sorry for the joke there. Do we not do jokes on this? I don't do know. Do, it, do we do jokes? Do, do I have to stop now? <laughs> joke, I don't know. Joe, keep the, keep the jokes in. Keep the jokes in. The jokes are important. Yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, my, my path, uh, I think uh, quite a few years ago, maybe about eight years ago, I realized I was interested in uh, stress and um, over the course of researching that trauma. Um, and so that led me towards working at the Dallas VA and I worked there for about a year before going to grad school and uh, got really into uh, initially working with uh, veterans who were survivors of combat trauma. Um, and that kind of segued into working with survivors of military sexual trauma. And during grad school, I continued that work in terms of treatment and understanding the consequences of military sexual trauma. And one of those major consequences at the moment that we're just starting to get a lot more research on is uh, risk for suicide. And so that aligned really well with uh, the work that uh, Lindsay Monteith is doing here. So we've kind of uh, naturally extended that work and really kind of synthesizing uh, risk for suicide as well as PTSD and, and trauma sequelae among that population. Excellent. Well, we're so glad to have you here in Denver. Um, you touched on a few things there. I obviously want to come back to your work around treating trauma and understanding trauma. Um, but give us a little background on sort of the epi, the epidemiology. Um, as you mentioned, the relationship between trauma and suicide. What do we know? Yeah. So, you know, I think that uh, suicide is is something that's become a really uh, kind of hot topic, public health concern. And, you know, it's, it's always been an issue, but I think especially as it pertains to veterans and military personnel, uh, you know, a lot of the recent research has tended to indicate that it, it's a, a much greater concern among those populations, which I think has really prompted a lot of uh, work amongst uh, 
practitioners both in the VA and DOD as well as outside who work with those populations. And I think unfortunately at the moment, we know a lot and at the same time, we just don't know that much. And I think what I mean by that is we've we've done a lot of great research to really establish uh, correlates or things that are related or associated with risk for suicide. Um, however, I think we still have a lot more to do in terms of understanding the underlying factors that may be driving that risk. Um, and I think one great example as it pertains to a lot of the work I do is uh, trauma and PTSD. And so in particular, we know that uh, survivors of trauma, as well as individuals with PTSD, and in particular veterans and military personnel, are uh, or appear to be at heightened risk for both suicidal ideation, so thinking about suicide, as well as suicide attempts and dying by suicide. However, we also have a lot of really great research coming out um, that's really looking at understanding, is it just the PTSD or is it just the experience of the trauma or is it the symptoms of PTSD or is it other aspects that PTSD is related to, like its comorbidities, like substance use or depression or other factors like, you know, isolation from your interpersonal support system or decreased functioning so you're not going to work or things like that. And so I think that uh, we're, we're at a very exciting time to really hopefully figure out more about what's driving this risk and then ultimately hopefully tailor our interventions to really target and, and help these populations. Very good background to kind of introduce oh, thank us. thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a very important topic. We're glad you're here to help study it here at the Rocky Mountain Myrick. So dive into a little bit more about the work you're doing here and, and how it relates to this topic. Okay. Um, So a lot of the work I've been doing here is really looking at uh, survivors of military sexual trauma, which is an unfortunately common occurrence. Um, So about 40% of women and 4% of men will experience military sexual trauma, give or take, depending on who's reporting it or the the study. And um, when we say military sexual trauma, we mean both military sexual assault as well as military sexual harassment. And um, there's been a lot of research that's really attempted to understand, you know, uh, the the consequences of military sexual trauma within this population. So we know that there's a lot of research showing that survivors of this event tend to have higher rates of PTSD than even survivors of combat trauma and also tend to have decreased functioning, higher rates of both psychiatric and uh, medical diagnoses. Um, and so the work we've been kind of trying to do here is to really understand as it pertains to risk for suicide, what are some of those factors that might be driving that risk? Um, so some of the work we've recently been really focused on is really looking at both qualitative and quantitative data. So looking at interviews we've done with individuals to figure out what are the self-reported perceived um, consequences of military sexual trauma and how do those precede or precipitate uh, the actual uh, self-directed violence. Um, we've also really been trying to hone in and figure out different um, factors within this population. So in particular, one project that we've just recently wrapped up and uh, we have under review. So if anyone watching this is uh, reviewing that article, I hope you click accept. (laughs) And uh, we've really been looking at things like non-suicidal self-injury or non-suicidal self-directed violence within this population. Um, Because as it stands, we know that um, NSSI or non-suicidal self-directed violence is linked to um, subsequent uh, suicidal self-directed violence. However, we really don't understand rates, especially as they pertain to survivors of military sexual trauma. And so we've been trying to get a better understanding of how it's linked with uh, risk for suicide, including psychiatric symptoms and suicidal ideation, uh, prevalence rates within samples, as well as really trying to figure out what are the methods that uh, both male and female survivors of military sexual trauma are engaging in. 
Excellent. And you touched on a few things there I want to circle back to, starting with the qualitative piece. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, first of all, why is it important to get the veterans' actual perspectives rather than, you know, what we think of as quantitative data or numbers? Or I shouldn't say instead of, but just (laughs) why is it important to get it in addition to these quantitative numbers? And give us maybe a example or an experience, if you could share one, that sort of illustrates uh, what this all means. Uh, so I think that's a great question. I think that, you know, I'm I'm a big proponent of what we call mixed method methodology, which is really using both qualitative and quantitative data to inform one another. So my background is primarily in quantitative data analysis. Um, however, I think one of the difficulties with quantitative data analysis is a lot of times, you know, we're trained in our fields to think about things in a very theory-driven way. And a lot of times that what that entails is we have these a priori or before we do the analyses kind of hypotheses. And I think those are really great to inform our work because we don't want to go in there data mining. However, I think one of the difficulties with that is from what we know in science is theories don't last forever, right? You know, there's a reason we no longer think the world is flat or that we no longer uh, use some of the same principles that we used to adhere to. And I think how that applies to our field is sometimes we have to take the theories we have and improve upon them. And I think the difficulty is if we're continuing to just use data in a way in which we input things that we are theorizing our predictors only rather than, you know, including everything, then we're not going to potentially find other findings that might be really important. And so I think that's really kind of how qualitative, in my opinion, in my work has come into play. Um, so really doing these interviews has allowed us to really both confirm some of the certain theories we've we've had surrounding, um, let's say, risk for suicide in this population, as well as really build upon it. So I think a great example of this is from what we know amongst the uh, literature, uh, interpersonal aspects are a huge factor when it comes to risk for suicide. So feeling isolated from your support system, feeling like you're just a burden on other people. And as it pertains to these interviews, we've really heard that when we asked individuals what really precipitated their self-directed violence. However, we also heard other things in there. So in particular, I think a great example of that is um, amongst our male survivors, we heard a lot of uh, factors pertaining to what it meant to experience sexual violence as a male, and in particular, typically at the hands of another male. And so I think it really kind of ended up further informing kind of some of the theories or or, uh, conceptualizations we have for risk for suicide in terms of these might be factors that we need to be thinking about and assessing when we're working with these populations, as well as thinking about how they fit into our current theories. Do they just fit into something like emotional pain or are there other perceptual components that we're maybe missing? And I want to keep going with that around (laughs) these gender differences and some of the work you've all been doing um, around understanding perspectives of military sexual trauma from both men and women. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. And, you know, I think that um, I really have to laud a lot of the work. You know, I came in here and helped at the tail end, but I think that the Rocky Mountain Myrick has done a lot of great work because the unfortunate truth is uh, the field of military sexual trauma is very siloed. There's only a few people who really end up kind of doing this work. And um, as it pertains to that, we end up having these very segregated samples that we don't end up synthesizing. And those samples tend to be largely female. And so what we end up having is these uh, remote samples of maybe 10 males that we try to understand. And it's really hard to do a lot of data analyses when you have a sample that small. And um, here at the MIREC, they've done a lot of great work to recruit very fairly equally sized samples of both uh, male and female um, individuals and also really view that from a very culturally diverse lens. So thinking about things not just in terms of Uh, gender binary, but also getting information on, let's say, uh, individuals who identify as transgender or non-gender binary. And, you know, the 
the very interesting thing is we've had a lot of theory-based research, especially as it pertains to things like uh, male survivors of military sexual trauma, because unfortunately, survivors of any form of sexual violence tend not to come forward. However, it tends to be even more rare amongst male survivors. And as you can imagine, with a lot of the aspects of stigma and, and uh, cultural norms, the, the interesting thing is a lot of the theory-driven work has been very supported within our data. You know, there's been theories about, like, well, how would this impact uh, a male survivor's masculinity or perception of masculinity or how that um, – Males t- might tend to express things more in terms of anger or in terms of uh, certain more externalizing behaviors, so things like punching walls um, versus uh, uh, female survivors might tend to express things in, more in terms of sadness. Um, however, in the same vein, there's also been a lot of very interesting findings that doesn't tend to follow what we also tend to extrapolate from the more civilian-based literature, um, which I think would be very consistent with what we're seeing within veteran and military populations. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of high rates of substance use in both male and female survivors, which, you know, for a long time, trauma and substance use was much more associated in uh, male survivors. And I think it's great to be further informing the literature because I think that's how we really develop patient-centered cares by really understanding the needs of, of, of the patient in a very intersectional way. That's a great transition into um, some of the care options that are available. I mean, I feel like you've touched on a lot of the factors that might be driving suicide risk. And uh, how do we intervene on this pathway? Well, I have to acknowledge my bias. I'm definitely a huge proponent of evidence-based care. Um, so my background is largely within uh, PTSD and PTSD treatments. Now, I want to make sure to say that military sexual trauma is not synonymous with PTSD. There's a lot of other diagnoses, and in particular, sometimes those diagnoses are more prevalent, so things like substance use, depression, personality pathology, etc., um, however, um, I obviously want to speak from my wheelhouse and not like act like I know something I don't. And, you know, as it pertains to post-traumatic stress disorder, I think we have good data to suggest that there are evidence-based treatments that will work in this population. So in particular, cognitive processing therapy um, has demonstrated effectiveness within this population. However, we, we do want to state that uh, the effect sizes within this population are not as robust as in other populations. So even though we know it's better than um, other forms of evidence-based treatments like uh, present-centered therapy, and we do know that it uh, is likely better than things like potentially treatment as usual, we don't know that it is the optimal treatment as it stands. And I think that is the truth across all evidence-based treatments is um, we've really done a great job of developing structured treatments that target underlying predictors of, of therapeutic response for symptom reduction. However, I think we need to continue thinking about how we can continue to not only roll out those treatments and get people to use them and use them as they're intended to be used, but also how can we get people to improve upon these treatments and and make sure that we're looking not just at symptom reduction, but also functional um, impairment and how we address that. Did I fully answer your question? I want to make sure. I yes. know I talked a lot. <laughs> um, that was very helpful. So hearing about cognitive processing therapy, I guess one of the questions that came to mind is, you know, what do you think or could you uh, conjecture about why oh, this conjecture, treatment? That's a, that's a fancy word there. I like it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you talked about uh, cognitive processing therapy as being a evidence-based treatment that may be effect, uh, effective among individuals with a history of MST. Um, Tell us a little bit about why it might not work for some people or what are some barriers to really engaging in that care? Yeah. And, you know, I think right now this is definitely the, the, I would say million dollar question, but now like 
we've we it, people have gotten so much richer than when I was younger. So it'd be, I guess, the billion or the trillion dollar question, right? And I think you know this pertains to not just cognitive processing therapy, but I think all forms of evidence based treatment. And and I think one of the difficulties is, like I said, we know that these treatments are better than other forms of treatment, right? However, there's still these issues, whether it's therapeutic response, whether it's people maintaining and staying in these treatments. Um, and I think there's, in my opinion, and in, in, in terms of what the literature has said, there's a lot of different factors we have to think about here. Um, I think one of the first and most major factors is I think that a lot of individuals still aren't implementing these treatments as they're supposed to be doing. Um, so, for instance, we, uh, re- we published a study and a couple of other individuals have published similar studies where we've really looked at um, how these treatments are intended to be used. And very often, I think a lot of individuals will deviate from the protocols. And there's times when deviation from the protocol is very, very therapeutic. Um, and there's times when doing so is actually contraindicated or it's not going to help. And I think sometimes individuals will trust their clinical judgment more than the research. And I think that sometimes there, there's an argument for both sides. However, I think what we're, we're tending to find is that clinical judgment is not always as uh, strong of a predictor of therapeutic response as sometimes we're thinking. Um, and so I think it's just important to really maintain balancing clinical judgment with research, with consultation, with, you know, making sure that we're really honing on the correct target. Um, I think another difficulty is in the same way that suicide and things like TBI um, have become very hot topic issues, especially in the in the VA and military, PTSD is is very similar. And I think very often individuals might present with that as being the primary when really there might be other concerns going on. And I think the difficulties when we look at our RCT data, we know that a lot of these samples are really, really clean. We know that individuals who are excluded who might have acute suicidal intent or certain comorbidities. And the unfortunate truth is those comorbidities are common. It's very uncommon to see an individual with PTSD who doesn't have comorbid substance use or who doesn't have um, acute suicidal intent at times or who doesn't have bipolar disorder or psychosis. And I think the difficulty there is then we're attempting to potentially implement a treatment that might not be uh, the the best match. So I think a, a great example of this is something like seeking safety, where we used to kind of end up in these ruts where we target just PTSD or just substance use disorder treatment when we really needed something that was a more integrative treatment so that was able to target both of those. And so I think that's how seeking safety really fit a niche that was important. And, you know, my hope is that we can continue, whether it's going down a transdiagnostic route, whether it's going down uh, a more dual diagnosis or a polymorbidity route, finding treatments that are going to be effectual across multiple populations. And I think, you know, we've had a lot of great work coming out now just really talking about really a big need within the clinical literature to um, expand external uh, generalizability external generalizability or external validity within our samples. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. And um, talking about external generalizability and this idea of really treating the whole person and looking Mm -hmm. at from a transdiagnostic perspective, where do you see uh, research going next in this area? Um, You know, I think a lot of people have a lot of different opinions uh, uh, concerning this. You know, I 
I was trained uh, maybe potentially a little different than other individuals at, at this uh, Myrec in terms of, you know, one, one thing that was really honed into me is really to match diagnosis to treatment. And, you know, I, I'm a big proponent of believing that, you know, we are a medical field. And I think part of the medical field entails that we, we uh, create diagnoses that are based on the research. And then those diagnoses have a certain set of symptoms that are behaviorally measured that we can then target through appropriate interventions. I think one of the difficulties and kind of the crossroads that our field is in is we know that our diagnoses are imperfect. However, they're the best thing we have. So what do we do, right? And so I think we kind of encounter these difficulties with the proliferation and potentially, I'm not sure where it's at now, things like RDoC or, you know, uh, I think there's also even newer things that are coming along to really hone in on them. Can we find underlying mechanisms that might be more informative than the diagnoses we have? Um, You know, I think my thought is that there's certain diagnoses that I think as we get better at really um, understanding and increasing our kappas on our diagnoses are, are going to become uh, more and more uh, reliable and, and valid. However, I think we also have a, still have a, a really hard job of removing the politics and of removing the theory from a lot of our diagnoses, which I think is important. And, you know, I think that a great example of this is looking at something like the SDVCS they've developed here versus something like the DSM, where, you know, the CDC really worked hard to uh, remove a lot of the theory and bias we have within our classification so that it was a really a theoretical thing. And, and I think there's still some semblance of that within the DSM. And so I think it's really important for us to really move towards continuing to make our diagnoses even, even better and better and then matching those to appropriate intervention. Just to clarify for any of our listeners, mm-hmm. the SDVCS is what? Oh, it is the uh, self-directed violence classification system. You're putting me on the spot there. That's um, right. Well, we want to hear a little bit more yeah. about that and, and, and say, say a bit more. Yeah. yeah so uh, the SDVCS is, is actually uh, something I actually really like a lot. Um, I had never been trained on it before I came out here. So I think that um, – and, and my guess is for anyone listening or anyone not listening – that this is a really common thing where when it comes to um, uh, suicide, uh, training surrounding suicide and risk for suicide, it's very variable. And we actually have some research showing that a lot of institutions actually barely train on it at all. Um, so I, I can tell you I was trained on a wide gamut from not asking about it because it would enter it into, the, into potentially the therapeutic frame to no suicide contracts to safety planning, which are all very different in how they interpret and conceptualize and handle uh, risk for suicide. And uh, the SDVCS is a method of really figuring out how we can conceptualize and assess um, risk for suicide in a very systematic way. And I think one thing that I really like about this system is that it—it's it, a system that I think it, it just really increases the ability to communicate the risk. Um, so, for instance, you know the how this system was really originally formed is. Uh, the CDC came along and said that research is all over the place. People are using all these different terms. People are using all these different measures. How do we make this consistent? And so part of the work that happened here at the the Rocky Mountain Myrick was a, a real big push to be able to implement something that could be really disseminated in the VA to really help increase that communication um, amongst providers. And I think especially in this time now with the, the people able to access choice providers also into the community. 
And by asking just a series of brief questions, you can actually arrive at a certain classification. And then that classification can further inform where that acute and chronic risk is at and what we can we can do to intervene. So really thinking about, you know, suicidal ideation, intent, self-directed violence, suicidal or non-suicidal, and thinking about what are those appropriate both brief interventions, whether it's uh, safety planning or hospitalization or more intensive outpatient monitoring. Um, and, and I think this really is important for, for our um, uh, for our veterans as well as other patients because I think one thing that has been common as it pertains to suicide is a lot of providers can get very anxious when that happens. I know it happens to me. And then we end up not being sure if we're making the right decision on how we help these, these uh, patients. And I think it's so important because we know from the research if we erroneously hospitalize um, or if we don't hospitalize when we should, those can both have ramifications that can impact subsequent treatment. Very important. And uh, just a quick plug that we'll certainly yeah. put a link in here for, for our listeners to check out the SDVCS with some training videos as well. Um, you mentioned a couple things there. And I know um, as you're gaining experience working with populations with PTSD, with MST, what are some advice or some uh, takeaways you can offer to clinicians working with these kind of populations, both veterans and uh, inside the VA and in the community? Um, so I think one big piece of advice I would give, and I try and take this advice every day, is um, you're never too old to learn something new. I think that, and, you know, for instance, I think about this not just within my research, but my clinical work, you know, I've been trained as a cognitive behavioral therapist for, for many, many years. However, that doesn't mean that I can't go out and learn new brief evidence-based treatments and and I think that's one of the difficulties, especially if you've been out of school or out of uh, training for so long, is you kind of think, well, why can't I just do what I've done before? And I think the, the, the truth of the matter is mental health in many ways is many, many years behind other um, forms uh, or other uh, fields in the medical field. I think a great example of that is why the Myrex were even invented. We knew that they were a huge burden of cost. However, we were only funding about 1% to 2% of research funding towards mental health. And so I think it shows you that as we're going to increase more, hopefully as we're going to increase more funding or uh, more research into this field, I think, unfortunately, the half-life of our knowledge is going to continue to decrease. And so if we don't stay up to date, we're not going to be offering optimal care. And so I think it's, it's so important to be cognizant that we have great interventions now, and we also have to be open that those can change or that those can improve or that we can augment those treatments or those assessments or those brief interventions. And I think the reason I, I bring this all up is that within the VA as well as outside of the VA, there's so many great training resources. And I think that uh, both within the VA and outside the VA, this is another issue of like, well, how do I even learn this? And I think that uh, there's just so many different entities that want to teach people, whether it's the uh, National PTSD Consultation Service, Center for Deployment Psychology. I mean, even here as it pertains to uh, suicide risk management, whether it's assessment, whether it's intervention, whether it's postvention, we also have a, a national service that is is free of charge for VA and non-VA um, uh, providers. And I think you know, the, the first step of really being able to decrease that anxiety or to increase your efficacy is putting in that consultation and knowing that we want help. Everyone in this field wants to help, right? That's why we went into this field. No one goes into this field to hurt people. Absolutely. And I think that if, if 
if that's if we want to ensure that and continue on that path, these are steps we have to take. Absolutely. Well said. And um, I feel like there's so many more directions we can go. So I, I feel like we'd we'd love to have you back to continue this conversation. But for today, do you have any closing uh, parting oh words for us? Oh, well, uh, <laughs> that is a very loaded statement, you know, because uh, there's so many different uh, directions I could go. Um, you know, I think as it pertains to um, I, I think one uh, as it pertains to military sexual trauma, uh, one of the, the big takeaways I, I just always encourage providers is that, you know, among survivors of interpersonal trauma, whether it's sexual violence during the military service, whether it's during childhood, uh, whether it's in a, a adulthood outside the military, th- these are really complex populations we're working with. And they're there at times can be very difficult and they at times can really in- engender or bring up a lot of responses in ourselves towards our patients. Um, and I, the biggest thing I just always encourage providers is to really think about how, uh, what that natural response is and, and why it's happening and how it might impact care or assessment and and really seeking out the consultation during that process to help the patient. Um, because I think in many ways that can get what, in the way of care, whether it's because you're delaying care because you think this individual's too labile or whether it's because you're not believing the patient. These are all things that might actually be more provider-centric than patient-centered. And we really need to, to think about that our patients aren't the only ones who need to be aware uh, of certain things, um, you know, because self-care and fatigue is real in this field. And, and hopefully we can uh, continue to have that as an open conversation and, and further reduce burnout and, and uh, uh, lower effect sizes. Lots of great points there. Um, well, thanks for joining us today, oh, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Great. Well, everybody, that was Dr. Ryan Holiday joining us from the Rocky Mountain Myrick, and uh, we hope you enjoyed the show today. Um, you can always find out more about Dr. Holiday by clicking on the notes that accompany the podcast. As always, we welcome you for any comments, questions. Um, subscribe to the podcast, share with your colleagues, and until next time, join us for more interviews on important work in suicide prevention.